0: greet you in our Savior's name, and I invite you to open your Bibles to Ephesians. And we want to look at a few verses in the last chapter, and I may add that they are very familiar verses. I was uh, thinking about them this morning and uh, wondering, how many times have I read these verses, these first verses of chapter 6? or heard them read, and thought about them. They're very familiar, I think, to all of us. Ephesians 6, and we'll read the first ten verses. I'm sorry, uh, nine verses. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with thee, and that thou mayest live long on the earth. And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters, according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in singleness of your heart as unto Christ. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will, doing service as to the Lord and not to men. Knowing that whatsoever good thing any man doeth, The same shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. And ye masters, do the same things unto them, forbearing, threatening, knowing that your master also is in heaven. Neither is there respect of persons with him. So here in this passage we have instructions for children, good instructions We have instructions for fathers, for parents, for servants and masters, good instructions. Children are to obey their parents, and parents are to wisely train their children, and servants are to serve their masters, to obey them, slaves. What I'd like for us to notice here, what we need to notice, is how these things are to be done. In the Lord, children obey your parents, in the Lord. In the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Servants, obeying your masters as unto Christ not with eye service as men-pleasers, but as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, doing service as to the Lord and not to men. And in verse 9, knowing that your master also is in heaven. There is something more than just following your parents' instructions. Parents, I mean, children are to note that. There is something more for parents than just wise training. It's more than just doing what the master asks, what the employer asks of us. And it's more than just offering good employee benefits. But for the Christian, this passage tells me that God is to be central in the doing of all of these things. They're to be done as unto God, as the servants of Christ, and serving Him from the heart. It could be that children obey, that they follow the instructions as given by their parents, Or that parents nurture, that they provide food and clothes and they teach uh, kindness and respect and obedience. And that servants would follow their master's instructions and employers are nice to their employees or any other of a multitude of tasks. And responsibilities and vocations and proper behavior, but do them all as unto men and because of men or just because that's the way it should be done and not as unto God or in the Lord. I think it could happen. I think it does happen. Good things can be done, but be empty of God's grace, and void of godly virtue, and just become a thing to do to itself apart from God, and even over time uh, being distorted to the extent that its meaning and purpose is lost. Uh, Just a couple of of examples of that. Uh, Example number one. Fasting. In the Old Testament, the law required one fast on the day of atonement. In Leviticus 23, beginning at verse 26, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Also on the tenth day of this seventh month, there shall be a day of atonement. It shall be an holy convocation unto you, and ye shall afflict your souls, referring to, to the fast, and offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. <coughs> by the time of the captivity, uh, the captivity. The Jews were keeping four fasts. There had been calls for fasts during a time of times of national crisis, uh, which is right and good. But then those fasts were continued. They turned into kind of a commemorative uh, event They became a thing to do and became largely meaningless to them or to God. In Zechariah 7, in verse 5, Speak unto all the people of the land and to the priests, saying, When ye fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh month, even those seventy years, did ye at all fast unto me, even unto me? And the next chapter there in Zechariah refers to fasts in the fourth, fifth, seventh, and tenth months. <clears throat> but the answer to God's question was no. Those fasts were not, were not pleasing to God. They weren't. They were not fasting as unto God. It wasn't worship from their hearts. It was something to do, something that was on their calendars. Zechariah prophesied that a revival would come in the future, but at this point, this fasting was an empty exercise. And Isaiah and other prophets also spoke against their empty, abominable fasts. In the New Testament, strict Jews uh, fasted twice a week. Uh, like the Pharisee in the temple was boasting in Luke 18. He, the Pharisee who prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I'm not as other men are. I fast twice a week, he said. And Jesus spoke against that attitude and that kind of fasting. And he brought the focus back to, unto God. <coughs> In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Moreover, when ye fast, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces, that they may appear unto men to fast. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou fastest, anoint thine head and wash thy face. That thou appear not unto men to fast, but unto thy Father, which is in secret. And thy Father, which seeth in secret, shall reward thee openly. And our scripture from Ephesians said, not as unto men, but unto God. So their fasting uh, was not unto the Lord. And when fasting is not unto the Lord, there is no grace, there is no blessing. God is not pleased. A second uh, Bible example would be the Sabbath day. The fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Exodus 31, six days and verse 15. Six days may work be done, but in the seventh is the Sabbath of rest. Holy to the Lord, whosoever doeth any work in the Sabbath day, he shall surely be put to death. It was to be kept. It was a commandment of the Lord, and violators were to be stoned. And there's a story told in Numbers uh, when that happened, that the children of Israel were in the wilderness, and they found a man that was gathering sticks on the Sabbath day, and they brought him to Moses, and they they uh, put him in ward. Uh, in a holding pen or in a tent with a guard or something until it, was to be, until it was decided what should be done. And the Lord said to Moses, the man shall surely be put to death. And he was. It was the law. In Jesus' day, there was a lot of stress put on keeping the Sabbath. We read about it in Matthew, or studied it in Matthew. The Jews were very critical of Jesus and about his, the things that he did on the Sabbath. They had come to overstress details and distortions from the original commandment and purpose. And there were many Prohibitions invented that were never intended at all in the original commandment. And the Sabbath had become an end in itself to which good Israelites must subject themselves. Man, In other words, it was like man was made for the Sabbath. And man may suffer because of it, but the Sabbath must be kept at all costs. And as the abuse continued and the distortions multiplied, including illogical requirements and exceptions, it became like some bloated uh, government program. And one almost needed a lawyer to steer safely within all the subtle nuances and exceptions. I read of a in Brooklyn of New York, there, there, is, uh, there are quite a few Orthodox Jews, and there were a couple of sects of them, well actually it was a larger sect that was kind of divided into uh, a very conservative Orthodox group and a more progressive group. And the, and the uh, Orthodox, most Orthodox group, they stressed that nothing should be carried outside of the home on the Sabbath day. Be it even a baby or a house key, it, it should not be done. The more progressive group basically believed that. But they stretched it, and the way they stretched it was through something called Erov. I'm not sure if I'm saying it right. But by taking a wire or a thread or a string, you could go from the door of your house or from your house and make a, enlarge your house, as it were. You could go through a large area of the community and circle it. And that could be considered a part of your house. And then you could carry your baby and your keys or push a baby carriage or do other, in quote, Sabbath work. And that would be fine. But the, the more orthodox Jews were very uh, unhappy with that. They would go about, sometimes sneak about, with uh, wire clippers and scissors and snip the wires or the threads you know to mess up this home extension and sometimes there were was shoving when the groups came together and there were very hard feelings hatefulness Jesus said, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. In these Pharisees' hearts in Jesus' time, Jesus was not acknowledged as Lord, or Lord of the Sabbath. Not in Israel then, or in Brooklyn, more recently. Now these are pretty extreme examples, but they they illustrate the point. Paul talked about, to Timothy, wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.5 about A form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. People that have a form, but live contrary to Christ and without the life of Christ and without the fruit of a life with Christ. Some, some people maybe have the form and aren't denying the power. They just don't have much power. And experience little of the grace of God in everyday life. And they maybe struggle to try to conform to Christ in their everyday life, but in their own strength. And sometimes they just reach the place where they don't even struggle any longer. They're weary and defeated. You've probably heard this. Uh, This isn't an exact quote, but I've seen it several different places or heard it said. Someone asking, if the Spirit of God would leave today's church... Would anybody notice? Or would it just appear the same? Would the structure, would the programs, would the ways of doing things, the habits, even the personal habits and practices, uh, just go dutifully on, all keep going, but as unto men, and or in the strength of men. That is not where we want to be. It's not where I want to be. Let's return to our passage in Ephesians. Children, (coughs) obey your parents in the Lord. For this is right, honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with thee, and that thou mayest live long on the earth. And you fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in singleness of your heart as unto Christ. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but as the servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. With good will Doing service as to the Lord and not to men. Knowing that whatsoever good thing any man doeth, the same shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. And ye masters do the same things unto them, forbearing, threatening, knowing that your master also is in heaven. Neither is there respective persons with him. In the Lord, within his laws, as his representatives, in the Lord. In verse 4, the nurture and admonition of the Lord, as, as God directs, as the Lord directs in his word and in his name. Uh, with his sanction and under his authority as parents. In singleness of heart as unto Christ, devoted to Christ for the love of Christ and desiring to serve and please him. And again in verse 6, as servants of Christ. And from the heart, a sincere, genuinely changed heart. That is reaching toward God and sincerely loves God and serves God and others. And the same again in, in uh, verse 7. Clearly, there's a a heart, a heart condition, a heart relationship, a desire, an obligation to God, and a grace from God. And and the, the bottom line here is that a sound, healthy heart brings good results. A malnourished, unhealthy heart does not. Jesus said in Matthew 12, either make the tree good and his fruit good or else make the tree corrupt and his fruit corrupt for the tree is known by his fruit. O generation of vipers, How can ye, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. A good man out of the good treasure of the heart bringeth forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure bringeth forth evil things. What comes out of the heart And the life that is lived from the heart depends on the heart's condition. And the heart's condition hinges on two things. One is the ownership of the heart. Who owns the heart? Does God own this heart or me? Has it been surrendered? Has it been committed to God? Is it committed to God? Like we sang, take my heart and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Is that settled? Who owns the heart? And on what is the heart nourished? What is the heart fed? And what is it filled with? Now, I hope that question number one is settled for all of us. God owns this heart. I hope we sang that heart that song, Take My Heart and Let It Be, with genuine feeling and sincere commitment as we sang that song. If if that's not the case, then we have a troubled heart. We have a heart in need. Now it's not necessarily a once and done thing. It needs a daily attention. But when one number one is settled, ownership of the heart is settled, and the heart is God's, then what about Number 2 On what is the heart nourished and fed and filled? That has a lot to do with how well we do with number 1. Doesn't that? Turn with me to 1st John the first chapter We'll notice a few verses there we'll (coughs) quickly. Starting at verse one. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the Word of Life, speaking of Jesus. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life, which was with the Father, and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard, declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father, and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full." John saw Jesus, he touched Jesus, he heard Jesus, and the things he learned from Jesus, he is sharing with with us. We share Christ with you, so you can join us in spiritual fellowship with us, and with the Father and with the Son, and that you may know joy. And clearly, When you read this, you know that this was a heart experience for John. He was writing from his heart. He lived a life from his heart. It was clear who owned his heart and on what he fed. Uh, Let's check with Peter quickly. In 2 Peter, we'll not read all of this in chapter 4, starting at, uh, I'm sorry, 2 Peter 1, and starting at verse 4, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith, virtue unto virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance, patience, and to patience, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 10, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, ye shall never fail. And um, in verse 19, we have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. You just feel the fervor of the inspired Peter as he wrote this Epistle, it was clearly coming from his heart. It was a heart experience, a heart life. His whole life was affected. Christ was his life. It was clear who owned his heart and on what his heart was fed. Uh, Paul. I bow my knees, in Ephesians 3, unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man, that, ye may, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages. World without end. Amen. A powerful prayer. And Paul was praying for others what Paul knew and experienced himself in his heart and his life. And it's clear. uh, And we heard it in the opening that Jeff read this morning from Philippians. It is clear who owned Paul's heart and on what his heart was fed. Getting there is not all that complicated. Answering that question, who owns my heart? On what is my heart feeding? What am I feeding my heart? John said, abide in me and I in you. That's another familiar passage. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself. Except it abide in the vine. No more can ye. Except ye abide in me. Fellowship in the word. If ye abide in me. And my words abide in you. He said. There's fellowship in prayer. Our father. Which art in heaven. Worship. O Lord our Lord, how excellent is thy name. I like the focus that we've had in our prayer meeting, the Acts prayer, uh, beginning with adoration and thanksgiving. I will sacrifice unto thee with a voice of thanksgiving. But then there is living, the fellowship, uh, a living fellowship uh, that it's not just a mental, emotional thing in a quiet moment, but it is it is through my life, following the Lord, obeying the Lord from the heart, as Ephesians, as we saw there in Ephesians six, and if you keep my commandments. Ye shall abide in my love. So children, we know. The Bible says it. We've heard it from our parents. We've heard it from our Sunday school teachers. We heard it in Bible school. We've read it in stories. Obey your parents. That is right. That is What God says, obey your parents, honor them, respect them. You surely want to be doing that. But as you're old enough to understand, you want to do it in the Lord. If you're not obeying your parents, you're not walking with the Lord. Obey your parents. In the Lord. Fathers, parents, the work we do for our children, the teaching we do in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, that it be done as unto God, as unto Christ. Servants, masters, as unto Christ, as servants of Christ, doing the will of God. From the heart, as to the Lord, and not just to please men. We've read through this passage a couple times here this morning. And our question is, how is your heart? Who owns your heart? On what is your heart being fed? And how well is your heart being fed? A young person, a father, a mother, who an employer, who just steps out of his room after a significant, meaningful devotions, who is blessed and abiding, In Christ, who owns his heart is settled and he has been richly fed, he will find a...